Lord Jesus, you are worthy of it all. We have gathered today for no other reason than to worship you, Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, crucified, risen, exalted to the right hand of the Father. You are so worthy, Lord Jesus. We praise you. Lord, if there be anybody in this room who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray today will be the day they bow their knee to you, King Jesus, because you are so good to us. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And Father, from the fellowship before service, worship, communion, teaching, fellowship, be exalted, Lord Jesus. Be exalted in our midst. Let hearts be touched. Let lives be changed for your honor and your glory. For it's in Christ Jesus' awesome and powerful name I pray. Amen. 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 If you're able, you may have a seat. Praise the Lord. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and Andy will bring you a Bible. So um, hope everyone's doing well. I, uh, I, broke, I broke out my, uh, my garnet shirt last night to wear to service this morning, my garnet Gamecock shirt, and it had a blue stain on it, and um, so I wasn't able to wear it today. That was a joke. There was no blue stain on it. There was a stain on it, but my, my wife said, you can't wear that because it, it had a marking on it. But uh, anyway, just thought I'd let you know that reason I'm not wearing a shirt. I talked about that last Sunday about wearing our, our, our team colors. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But uh, thank you all for joining us. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we want to say thank you. In Calvary Chapel, we go verse by verse through the New Testament on Sunday morning, verse by verse through the Old Testament on Wednesday nights. And this morning, we're looking at eschatology. Do you know what the word eschatology means? The study of last things, the study of the last days. Here in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25, this is called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. He's talking to his disciples opposite, the opposite hill is Jerusalem. And he's telling them about what's going to happen in the last days prior to his return. And the by way of introduction, if there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, or listening online and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, as I teach expositorily through this text, verse by verse, think about where your heart is. Are, are you born again? Have you turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus and received the free gift of eternal life? So, Please hear my heart. As we teach through this, I'm going to teach it and explain some of the verses, and we're going to talk about it. But at the end of the day, I want the Word of God to get into your heart and change you and transform you, and you become a wholehearted, devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we do this, so that the Holy Spirit can work through the Word and get into your heart. So y'all ready to get into it? Let's do it. Matthew chapter 24. Let's read verses uh, 32 through 41 and see the introduction to what Jesus is talking to us about this morning. 
Matthew chapter 24, verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. And talking about his return, verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. Father, thank you for your word as we study it this morning. Lord, open our hearts. Lord, in this study of eschatology and last things, help each of us to understand how much you love us, how much you care for us, and how you want to come into our hearts, come into our lives, and be our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' awesome and powerful name I pray, amen. So the title of my message this morning is simply, Be Ready. Be ready, Jesus is coming. There are over 500 prophecies that point to the future return of Christ in the Old and New Testament. Jesus' life was laid out in the Old Testament. His birth, his deity, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his future reign. And in the New Testament, we're given the complete picture of this Messiah, Israel's Messiah, that will come at the end. Okay, so last week, we studied the events leading up to Christ's return. Remember what they were? The false Christ, we looked at that. We looked at apostasy. We looked at all the the cataclysmic events in the world. And in the midst of all that darkness, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to continue to move forward throughout the world to all continents. Because you cannot stop the gospel, okay? It can't. It's impossible. Because God is sovereign, God is Lord of creation, and he will get his word out to the entire world. So today, last week we looked at the events. Today we're looking at part two, and Jesus is driving home one main truth, and that is this. Be ready. He will return. With that said, let's take a look at it. Chapter 24, verse 32. Let's read verses 32 through 34. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now verses 32 and 34, there's a couple phrases in there that should have grabbed your attention. That you say, hmm, What does that mean? And the first phrase is in verse 32. Verse 32, he talks about the parable of the fig tree. And then in verse 34, he connects that parable of the fig tree to this generation. So that produces a question in our our minds. Who is this generation? What does the, uh, the parable of this fig tree, what does it represent? Well, there are two main interpretations. And I'm kind of split between the two because I see both of them in the text. The first interpretation is that this uh, fig tree, this generation, is the rebirth of the nation of Israel, okay? In the Old Testament, God referred to the nation of Israel as a fig tree. He did it in Jeremiah chapter 24. He also did it in Hosea chapter 9 verse 10 where it says, 
He says, Hosea 9.10, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her time. So many people believe this is, is the rebirth of Israel becoming a nation. What happened on May 14th, 1948? May 14th, 1948, the nation of Israel, for the first time in 2,000 years, 70 AD, they got wiped off. They, they, got, they got overrun, and the Gentiles, Britain, Muslim, and all these other countries have ruled the nation of the land of Israel for 2,000 years. But on May 14th, 1948, Israel became an official nation again. And many people say that this is the prophecy pointing to their rebirth. And there's lots of scriptural evidence for that position. But I also want to mention to you the second interpretation of this passage, and it comes from the immediate context. And the immediate context is this fig tree is the generation witnessing the events of Matthew chapter 24, the false Christ, the apostasy, and all the cataclysmic events. Remember last week, how did Jesus describe it? He described it as birth pains. When a, when a mother goes into birth pains, it does not stop until a newborn baby comes into this world. So the second interpretation is people seeing this as the generation that sees these things happening. And that generation that sees the cataclysmic events and all the signs of the time coming to pass, they will be the ones to witness the uh, return of Christ and, and the beginning of the great tribulation and all that stuff. So those are the two main interpretations. I really like them both. I really like them both because they're both biblical. They're both scriptural. Uh, but notice verse 35. Verse 35. I love verse 35 because I love my Bible. I hope you love your word. Do you love your Bible? It's, it's a beautiful, awesome, amazing book. It's God's love letter. It's God's truth written to each and every one of us. God has supernaturally given us Bibles so every one of us could have one for ourselves. Okay, you, just don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to just come to church and listen to the preacher read from the Bible. You have a Bible at home and you have a Bible in all the apps and everything. It's amazing what God has done through his word. But he says in verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Jesus is saying here, his word is enduring, okay? The, the word of God will last forever because the author is God and God is eternal, okay? And his word is eternal. And everything that's written in this book, don't listen to the skeptics. Don't listen to the atheists. Everything that's written in this book will come to pass. And you can trust it. And you can build your life upon it. His word is our anchor, his word is his precious promise. When I have my devotional time in the morning, I pray. I, I, I pour out my heart to the Lord and tell him everything that's going on in my life. And then I open up my Bible and I let his word speak. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all scripture is inspired by God. It is theonostos. Literally breathed out the breath. is the breath of God to us. If you want to hear God's audible voice, Read his word out loud and you will hear the audible voice of God. That's how sure and how firm his word is. It is truth. It is truth. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, for nothing can be done against the truth, but only for the truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. 
Your word is truth. Friends, you can build your life on the word of God, okay? Back in the Old Testament, the saints were encouraged to build their life, to build the nation of Israel, to build everything upon the word of God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse eight says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. In an ever-changing culture, where they say truth is changing, morality's changing, uh, everything's changing, the word of God does not change. And it is our firm foundation that you build your relationship with Christ on. You build your relationship with God based on the word of God, you will not fail. He will see you through to the end, come hell or high water. That's how firm and how strong and how powerful God's word is. Every, all of it. You can build your life upon it. That's verse 35. Verse 36. I like verse 36. Verse 36 settles a question for me. It, it saves me a lot of, re- it saves me a lot of uh, research and, and listening to all the YouTubers and, and, and all the prognosticators. Look at verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. You would think that this verse would put an end to all predictions and date setting, date setting for the rapture. If somebody comes to you and says, Jesus is coming back on this day, you can say, nope, because Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour. So if somebody predicts the day, that means their prediction is wrong because Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. We don't know, okay? It's, it's simply, that, but no one knows. The angels do not know. The son does not know. Only God the Father. God the Father is sitting on his glorious throne. The angels are surrounding the throne. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, Revelation chapter 4. And the Lord Jesus Christ is seated at his right hand. And one day, God the Father is going to turn to his son, Jesus, and say, son, it's showtime. And the Lord Jesus is going to rise up from his throne, and he's coming back to earth. He's coming back to earth as king of kings and lord of lords to establish his rule and reign. But no one knows. Verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, period. Verse 37, he's going to give us um, what the days will be like. So we can know the seasons. We can know the times. We can see the direction the world is heading in, but you can't predict. Verse 37, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Verse 39. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So let be with the coming of the Son of Man be. First off, the second coming of Christ, uh, the, the Bible says we can predict the second coming because the second coming takes place at the end of the great tribulation that seven-year period we talked about last week daniel's 70-week prophecy so believe what he's talking about here is the rapture of the church the rapture okay it will be sudden it will be unexpected it, the rapture of the church will catch people off guard in the days of noah there was great wickedness there was great corruption There was evil, there was violence. They mocked Noah and they laughed at him for building this ark. 
They ignored Noah's repeated warnings to repent. Friend, so it will be in the last days, is what Jesus is saying here in this text. Just like it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be with the coming of the Son of Man. The world will mock you and I for building our life on the ark of the Lord Jesus Christ. Walking in obedience, sexual purity, walking in holiness, they will laugh at those things. They will criticize us for our sanctification. You know the Holy Spirit wants to sanctify you? Your relationship with God can be described in three phases. First is justification. Justification takes place when you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You are justified. You are made new in Christ. You're forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future. But then you go into a process called sanctification. Sanctification is where hopefully uh, the majority of us are this morning now. We're growing. We're growing in our relationship with Christ. And in our sanctification, we are called to obedience. We are called to obedience, we are called to purity, we are called to holiness, we are called to separate ourselves from the things of this sinful world, and the world will mock that point. Instead of enjoying the pleasures of sin, Christians, we're not perfect, and Christians sin, but we repent. We repent and say, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. The world mocks and rolls their eyes at this spiritual discipline. We are called fools by the world. We are called fools by the world. And you know what? They're right. We are fools for Jesus. Because our eyes are on eternity. I want to show you a verse. This came to me this morning. I asked the guys to bring up 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. What you need to understand is in the first century... Christians were not looked, today's world, people think about Christians like, oh, yeah, man, we, sometimes we elect Christian leaders, we, we, we look up to, our, to those in the world who are Christian, we hold them in high position. But in the first century New Testament world, Christians were not held in a high position. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. I encourage you actually to go read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 9 through 13 to get the whole context. But he says in that passage that in the first century, Christians, they, they, were, they were the dregs of the world, okay? Paul says in this letter, he's writing to the church at Corinth. What's underlined is what the culture said about Christians. What's not underlined is what Paul says is truth. So the world says, first century, we are fools for Christ, they ridiculed them. They mocked them for their faith in Christ. You believe in this Jesus of Nazareth, this Jewish peasant from Israel that people claim rose from the grave? You are a fool. That's what the world said. But look at what Paul says. No, but you are so wise in Christ. Friends, the most wisest decision you will ever make in this life is found in your commitment to Christ. There is no greater, no wiser decision in this world that young people, old people, all of us will ever make than that of following the Lord Jesus Christ. He, and, then, and then the world said, you are weak. You are weak. You are weak-minded, feeble people with your simple, ridiculous faith. 
It's how they viewed the Christians in the first century. That's why they persecuted them and they hated them and they threw them them to lions. But Paul says, but no, you're not weak. You are strong. This is the greatest thing that you can do in this life is trust and believe in Christ and you will be made strong. And then he flip-flops it. He says, he says, you are honored. You are honored by the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has clothed you in his perfect righteousness. But the world in the first century, when Paul wrote this letter, he says, but we are dishonored. They thought it was, a, it was an unnoble thing for the first century followers to follow Christ. Friends and family, this is the most important thing that you could do with your life. Live your life, get married, have children, go to college, make a career of your life. Uh, Do the things that, that you're called to do in this life. But in the midst of all those things, place Christ first in your life. And it will be the wisest, greatest decision you ever made. The world tries to pick apart and disprove the Bible. If they're truly honest, they attack the Bible not because of the evidence, but because they don't like what it says. The Bible confronts man's sin and commands him to repent, and man does not like that. Friends and family, newsflash, we do not change the Bible. The Bible changes us. So just like in the days of Noah, back to our text, the world will ignore the command to repent and trust in Christ. And one day, one day in the future, we don't know the day, one day their worldview will come crashing down and they will fall to their knees in horror when Jesus returns and they come to the full realization that they were deceived. They will be swept away in judgment just like those in Noah's day. And we take no joy in that whatsoever. We love people. We pray for people. We do everything we can in our life to show people the love and the grace and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our passion. That's our goal. Because scripture says, God is willing that none should perish, but that all come to repentance. He wants all men to be saved. He wants all men to come to know him as as their Lord and their Savior. That's the reason you're here on this earth, is to have this intimate, loving relationship with God. That you were created, Imago Dei, in his image, so that you, you were, not so that, you were created in his image, and because you were created in his image, you can have a personal relationship with him where you love him, trust him, believe in him, and live your life for him. So we pray fervently for people. We pray fervently for the lost, and we witness to them, and we love them, and we want them to come to know Jesus so that they will not be left behind. Let's continue verse 40 and 41. Verse 40 and 41 says, Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Again, I believe he's, talk, he's transitioned here to, to the rapture. And, and the rapture of the church will be imminent. The rapture of the church will be unexpected. The rapture of the church, it will happen at any moment. 
Uh, we're not waiting on any world events. It, it, it is uh, the event that will likely kick off the great tribulation. It will be sudden. Scripture talks about it will be in the twinkling of an eye. Now, I want to, I want to show you, because some people um, attack the doctrine of the rapture, and people criticize it and, and say really negative things about it. So I want to show you this morning exactly where it comes from. And I'm going to quote to you from the Greek and the Latin so you see exactly where this word rapture comes from so you have an understanding. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Right there in the middle, you see that word caught up? Just, just, just circle that word in your mind. But let's read the whole passage. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain up will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. And I love what he says at the very end of this verse. This is huge, man. This is, this is cataclysmic, man. This is Christ returning to earth. And what does he say? Comfort one another with these words. The, the doctrine of the rapture, the return of Christ, is meant to comfort us. It's meant to bring us joy. It's meant to bring us hope. You know, when, when things go south, and bad things and tragic things happen in this world. And I'm sad and I'm depressed and I'm crying. I turn my eyes to Jesus. I turn my eyes to the Lord. And I say, Lord, I'm trusting in you. And one day I'm going to get to see you. Okay? So let these words encourage us. They're not meant to scare us. But, but the rapture will likely kick off the start of the great tribulation. Are you prepared for his coming? Will you be ready? Now, that phrase caught up in verse 17. Please go home and research this. Be a Berean, okay? Go home, break out your concordances, break out your Bible dictionaries, and look it up yourself. In the Greek, that phrase caught up is harpazo. In the Latin Vulgate of the New Testament, the word is raptura. And that's where we give the title this, this, this phrase getting caught up in the, rap, in the Latin Vulgate, Jerome wrote it as the word raptura. The word raptura in the Latin, in the Greek, harpazo, uh, look this up. The definition is a snatching away, a snatching away or a catching up. Okay, so if you don't want to call it the rapture, call it the doctrine of being caught up. Okay, but that's, that's where we get it. It's, it's, the Latin Vulgate uses the word raptura. And in English, we just say the, the, the rapture of the church. So that is where we get it. That is where the doctrine of, of rapture comes from. People will say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, not in the English translation, it's not. It's the word caught up. But guess what? The word Bible is not in the Bible, and we believe in the Bible. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, and we believe in the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. The word rapture is just a, um, a title of a word that we use for a doctrine, but it's, it's the caught up or the catching away. And uh, so anyway, let's continue. Are we ready? Will we be ready for his return? Let's continue, verse 42 and 43. It says, therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. So to be ready for the return of Christ, first you gotta be a Christian. You gotta 
invite Christ to come into your life, receive him as your Lord and Savior, repent of your sin, commit your life to following him, let him make you a new creation. But then after you are an established believer, what does it say here? You need to be alert. You need to be alert. And there's three areas I want to highlight in this uh, on how to, how to be alert. And notice he says, they would not have allowed his house to be broken into. In other words, it's going to happen in the middle of the night. It's going to happen like a thief in the night. And we have to be alert and we have to be ready. Number one, we need to be on the alert for distractions. Distractions. You've got to be on the alert, Christian, for distractions. What is a distraction? A distraction is anything that pulls you away from Jesus. Anything that pulls you away from devotion to Christ. It doesn't mean you're a monk and you go live in a, a, a castle and not do nothing with the rest of your life. Live your life. Do life. But keep Christ first. And don't let anything or anyone pull you away from your love, devotion, and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, be alert by exercising discernment. Okay? We need to be alert. We need to exercise discernment. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see the, whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. How do you test spirits? How do you test spiritual powers and spiritual forces at work in the world? It's, well, it's real simple, friend. You've got to know the word of God. You've got to know the word and you got to judge everything by the word. You should judge and evaluate everything that Pastor David says by the word of God, as well as any other church you go to. Is what the preacher's saying, is what the pastor's saying, is what the Bible study teacher is saying, does it line up with the word of God? That is our filter for truth, okay? So we got to exercise discernment. And the way you exercise discernment is by knowing your Bible, okay? knowing your Bible and hiding it in your heart. Thirdly, be alert for Satan's attacks. When you become a believer in Jesus, man, you just put a target that's got put on your back in the spirit realm. Satan is gonna come after you with all his forces and with all his fury. Your, his target is on your back in the spirit realm. He wants to attack you. He wants to take you out. He wants to infuse filthy thoughts into your mind. He wants to pull you away from devotion to Christ. And you've got to be on the alert. You've got to be diligent. You've got to be sober. In other words, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus says these words, but Peter says something very similar. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So the devil goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, you've watched those shows. I've watched way too many of them. I got too many of them imprinted in my head. All the shows of the African safari and the, the lions going after the wildebeest and the zebras and just the gory show it is of them going after them and eating them. How does a lion uh, get a wildebeest or a zebra or an animal? Well, they chase them down and they isolate them. They isolate them, and then they go in for the kill. And that's what Satan does with believers. He tries to isolate you 
from fellowship. He tries to isolate you from the word of God. He tries to isolate you from spending time with the Lord Jesus Christ. He tries to get you alone so that he can attack you, okay? So you need to be in the word, in fellowship, in prayer, guarding your heart, guarding your heart and guarding your mind in Christ. That is how we are alert. First Peter 5, 8, Peter says, be alert, same word that Jesus uses. And also he says of what? And sober mind. We need to have a sober mind. We need to think clearly, think logically. God has given us a brain, this five ounces of mush inside of our skulls. He's given us that brain so that we can think, so that we could reason and so that we can understand what's going on. So we need to be alert and we need to use our minds and our hearts to guard ourselves in Christ Jesus and let nothing stand in the way of serving the Lord. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. Jesus is our Lord. He's our savior. He's our best friend. He goes with you. He is in you. And he wants to stay with you and in you throughout this life. He wants you to just love him, trust him, and be with him. So it's like this, you and Jesus. You and Jesus are doing life till you step into eternity. That's the kind of relationship he wants to have with you. Do you have it? Verse 44. For this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Well, Jesus, how do we become ready? Look at verse 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master puts in charge of his household to give him their food at the proper time? Verse 45, how do we become ready? By look at the words in your text. Being a faithful and sensible servant to your, look at that key word. The NASB translates master, to your master. The Greek word for master here is kyrios. This word used in verse 45 is the exact same Greek word used in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, where it says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of your life. And you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you understand, I don't, know, I don't know if we all understand this. Do you understand what's rolling off your lips when you say Jesus is Lord? Do you understand the implications of that word when you say Jesus Christ is Lord? In the first century, when the book of Romans was written and delivered to the church at Rome, and they read that letter there at the church of Rome, and they got to Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God is from the dead, you will be saved. That was a death sentence in the first century. Because in the first century Roman world, there was one Lord and his name was Caesar. And to say anybody else's Lord except Caesar was a death sentence, okay? So do you see the level? Do you see the, the brevity and the depth of what's being said in Romans 10, 9, when you confess Jesus is Lord, when you, are, when you say that Jesus is Lord, you are saying this, Jesus is my master. Gee, that's what, when you confess Jesus is Lord, it's not just some liturgical statement 
that we say out of some written creed. You're saying that Jesus is master of your life. When you say that Jesus is Lord, you're saying you have surrendered your life to Christ. When you say that Jesus is Lord in the context of what was written in Romans and to the recipients of that book, when you say that Jesus is Lord and Master, you're saying that you have bowed your knee, not to Caesar, but to Jesus, and your allegiance is to him. Is Jesus your Lord this morning? Is Jesus your Lord this morning? As I was writing out my sermon this week, and you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to you guys what the Holy Spirit preached to me throughout the week. As, as I study and prepare for my teachings each week. But I, I had to ask myself, I had to ask myself, I had to reevaluate. I had to go back down to the foundation of my faith. You know, saying Jesus is Lord is a serious matter, David. You're saying that he is your master, he is your Lord, he is your sovereign uh, that you're in submission to. And as I examined my life, I was like, oh, Lord, I got to put this back under your, up, up under your lordship. I got to put this back up under your lordship. I want to surrender my life to you because you are my Lord. Make Jesus Christ your Lord. And that, that is not a hard process. It's called surrender. You just surrender. You say, uncle. You say, Lord, I throw my hands up. I surrender to you. Holy Spirit, please work in my life. And then the Holy Spirit does the work of you submitting and surrendering to him. It's a beautiful thing. Let's continue, verse 46. It says, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. That Greek word of, in verse 46, blessed, is makarios. You know what it means? It means, oh, so happy. It means, oh, so happy. Oh, so happy and filled with joy. Friend, there is no higher attainable joy in this world. There's no higher joy that you can experience in this world than the joy that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Our relationship with Christ is not a religion per se. It's not just something in our heads, in a compartment of our minds, but it's a relationship that produces this supernatural joy and excitement. And it just, you're, you're filled with inexpressible joy. That's what a servant of God, his relationship with God is like when you're a servant. You're filled with, you are makarios, you are blessed. You know, one of the reasons all the, one of the reasons I believe all the anxiety, depression, and the mental disorders in our world, why, why all that's taking place at a, astronomical crazy level is because our world is void of God. Our world is void of God. Friends, we need to go back to joy. Our world, our culture, our families, we need to go back to joy. And joy is found in Jesus. Joy, excitement, happiness, peace of mind, just all is well. That's the kind of joy and the blessedness that comes 
that God wants each of us to have. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. So again, family Christians, we are filled with inexpressible joy. And the pleasures of being a Christian are mind-blowing. They're awesome. You know, when I talk to someone about Christ and they just, they, they don't want it, they want to walk away, I'm like, are you kidding me? Why would you walk away from such a, a, an amazing offer, such an amazing relationship that's offered to us in Christ? He gives us joy. He gives us peace of mind, and he guards our hearts and minds. Verse 47, truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Verse 48, this is where we get into the unfaithful servant. Uh, verse 48, but if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time. Again, some people will, will hear the command to receive, believe, trust in Christ, but they will resist. And I believe that's what he's getting at here. And they began to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. You know, they will reject the word of God. They will live an ungodly life. And by the way, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 15 says that the way of the sinner is a hard life. I want to repeat that. The way of a sinner is a hard life. Living a life in rebellion to God is a difficult life. It's a difficult and hard life. You know, choose the good life. Choose the peaceable life of following Christ. Choosing sin over truth and righteousness is a foolish decision. Friends, let's not be a fool. I don't want to be a fool. I don't want you to be a fool. I don't want nobody to be a fool. I want them to know the joy of Christ Jesus. Verse 50, 50 and 51, last two verses. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and sign him a place with the hypocrites in the place that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, let's go. No, I can't do that. This is one of those difficult parts of scripture. This is one of those hard parts of scripture that we like to gloss over, that we like to skip over. What's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about the doctrine of hell. He's talking about eternity. You know, friends and family, the Bible teaches that there is a real heaven and a real hell. That there is, on the other side, everlasting joy and everlasting damnation. I want to read to you a quote from David Platt. David Platt says this, and I quote, True belief in both heaven and hell radically changed the way we live on earth. We are encouraged by the hope of heaven, and we are compelled by the horror of hell. We know that this world is not all that exists. We know that every person on the planet is only here for a brief moment, and an eternity lies ahead of us all. An eternity that is either filled with ever-increasing delight or never-ending damnation. When I think about hell, it horrifies me. It, 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 it horrifies me. When I think about heaven, I'm so filled with joy. I'm so filled with excitement. I'm so filled with hope. 
you know, I, I'm, I'm shooting for 100, okay? That's my personal goal. I want to live to be 100 years old and see my great-great-grandchildren. That'd be all well. But the truth of the matter is I'm not promised that. I'm not promised tomorrow. And one day I will step into eternity. And the reason I don't fret, the reason I'm not scared, the reason I'm not worried about it, the reason I won't be thinking about it tomorrow morning is because I know Christ is inside of me and he is my Lord. And I know that, that death is just a little boop, a little bump in the road and I will step into eternity and I will see my Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ in the new Jerusalem, the third heaven, the holy city that's talked about in Revelation chapter 21 and in John chapter 14. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 8, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Man, that is the glory. That is the truth. That's what liberates us and sets us free. That's what enables me to lay my head on my pillow at night and sleep in peace, knowing that my Savior has prepared a place for me in heaven. But then my mind turns to the doctrine of hell. And I'm, I tremble. I tremble at the fate of the lost. You know, I, I tell people, man, I want you to know Christ. I want you to know his love. I want you to know his truth. I want you to know his grace. I want you to know that every single sin that you have committed from birth until this very moment, my friend, and for all the sins that you will commit in the future, Jesus died on the cross for those sins so that you wouldn't have to pay the price under the judgment of God in hell. He rescues us from that. Jesus came on a rescue mission, and that should sober us. That causes me when I witness I don't want to do anything that's going to push people away from Christ, but I want my whole life to draw people to Christ because I want them to experience and understand and know that they have a hope and a future, and that hope and the future is in heaven. But we do need to understand, we do need to live with an eternal perspective. There is a heaven and there is a hell. Jesus talks about in verse 51, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It just, it drives me to my knees. Does it drive you to your knees? I heard, I heard one preacher say, you can't preach or teach on the doctrine of hell without tears. And I'm not crying right now, but in my heart, as I reach out to the world, I'm crying on the inside. And I'm saying, oh, my friend, please come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Surrender your life to him. Experience his love. Experience his grace. But there is a, there is a warning there. In closing, be ready for Christ's return. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It might be 100 years from now. No man knows the day. No one knows the hour. As you, as you reflect on the return of Christ, you know, and you get some books from the bookstore and you want to read about it, do me a favor. Don't be carried away by speculations. Don't be carried away by Bible codes. Don't be carried away by calendar predictions. People spend way too much time on that stuff. Jesus said in the word this morning, no man knows the day nor the hour. When I wake up tomorrow morning and I have that cup of joe and I'm sitting at my desk, 
thinking about what I'm going to do today, I would not, I would most likely not be thinking about the return of Christ. I will be thinking about, Lord, what do you want me to do with today? Who do you want me to witness to? Who do you want me to encourage? Who do you want me to talk to? That's what I will be doing. Be ready. Here's how to be ready for his return. Be ready by keeping yourself in the love of God. Walk in the love of God. You say, Pastor David, that's a, that's a big wide range word, the love of God. Can you spell that out for me? Yes, I can. You keep yourself in the love of God by keeping your heart filled with his word on a daily basis. Spend some time in the word. Let the word of God wash your heart. Let the word of God wash your mind. And that will keep you in the love of God. That's what, that's what drives me, man. That's what keeps me going. As I read the word, it, it re changes my mind, it changes my heart, and I feel this love for all people. Secondly, walk according to the spirit and not the flesh. You know, sin brings darkness, sin brings shame, sin brings guilt, sin brings condemnation. Uh, repentance and faith and spending time in the word, it brings light. It brings life. It brings joy. That word, verse 46, makarios, oh so happy and filled with joy. And then finally, keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the prize in this life. And keeping your eyes on the prize means keeping your eyes on our great God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Finally, if there's anyone here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In the New Testament, there's really three words I could preach on, talk on, but there's three words you need to understand. Receive, repent, and trust. You need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to say, Lord Jesus, please come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. And then you need to apologize for your sin. You need to repent. Say, please forgive me of all my law-breaking, of all my lawless deeds, of how I've lived my life in rebellion to you. And then say, Lord Jesus, I no longer trust in myself. I put my trust in you. The righteous will live by faith. That's how you can be saved. And that's how you can um, know that you'll be ready for his return. And then live your life for his honor and for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for the study this morning in your word. And Lord, help each of us this morning in person and watching online to be ready for your return by knowing you as our Lord and Savior and living our life for you. Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you. And Father, if there is anyone here that has not surrendered their life to you, I pray, Holy Spirit, you will work them over. You will work them over and change their heart and change their mind and help them to call out to you and surrender. Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you. And we thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.